That shouldn't be that one. That's that one. That's it. Uh, okay, part two of the Trinity. Um, the roles in the Trinity is it is this week. And last week, I think we tried to uh, understand, at least we tried, tried to understand. Uh, yeah, that way. That's fine. Uh, we tried to understand at least the basics of what the Trinity is, what it means, um, and uh, some of its purpose. We looked at who particularly don't believe in the Trinity, but why it is important that we do. Uh, we basically came to this conclusion, uh, which I think is, I believe is biblical, uh, that there is one God, three persons, all three are one God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This week we look to understand each distinct role that makes up the one triune God. Uh, and today I hope we can learn to understand that while uh, there is one God, while there is one God, each person that makes up the Trinity has a role to play in the overall being that is God. Let me explain what that means. Um, if you read the Bible and you read what the Father does, he does particular things, and then you get to the New Testament mostly, and you'll find that the Holy Spirit does some things, and then Jesus does some things. I mean, that's a very basic level of what I'm trying to say, uh, but you understand that their roles are very specific. Their roles have got a certain purpose that they, they are uh, there to do, um, and so we're going to look at that today. What I think is important to take away uh, from this is that each, as each person of the Trinity perform their role, they're doing this while being God at the same time. And so the application for us today is to help us understand how the Trinity is reflected in the unity and diversity of the church family and there and so in our everyday lives. So when we look at the Trinity, what it should remind us of is how God has set uh, the church to be in unity too. Uh, and whilst it is obvious that we cannot be in perfect unity, uh, as God is with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it is nonetheless a model that God has laid down in the Bible that we should be, that we should uh, be uh, as together and unified in as much as we can in this world as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I'm going to explain how that all works. So let's have a look at the first point here. We're going to look at the Father. What's the role of the, the Father in the Trinity? The Father within the Trinity, has a per, as a person, has a first priority within the Trinity. I'm, I'm not going to go into the, 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 the depths of what, why there's a first priority. There, there has to be a first priority, because God has made it that way. There's something called ec the economic Trinity, which means that you have a first priority of the Father, the second priority is Jesus, and the third priority is the Holy Spirit. But we need to be clear that they're not unequal, they're all equal. They're equally God. Just because there's a first, second, third does not mean they're less important or less relevant or less powerful or less godly. That's why this gets complicated. Trying to understand that there is a hierarchy, which is what we'll look at, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that they're hierarchical in their godliness. All three are God. And I'll explain, hopefully, how that all works together. Um, so the Father is at the top of the hierarchy when it comes to each person's place in the Trinity. Uh, and so in, in no way do the terms first, second, and third, which I will use, uh, apply to the, each person of the Trinity, suggest levels of importance or significance. 
They're all one with equal glory, equal power, equal majesty. And again, I'll, I'll show you that in here as well today. Uh, the best way to understand that there is an order of persons, not of importance, not of importance, but of, of power, uh, an order of persons, but equal in power, let me say that, order of persons, but equal in power, is a well-known verse that this church has still adopted uh, as, as our, I don't know what, what to call it anymore, uh, but we, we call it as a, it's something that we live by, something that we, we believe in disciple making as a church. So there's Matthew 28, 19, and you may not have looked at this verse in this way, you may have, and you may have understood it. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what we do is we look at this verse and what we, we look at discipleship and we go, this is, this is what we're, we're going to go and make disciples and we go and tell people about Jesus. And then when they come to Jesus, they get baptized and they make a public statement about their belief in Jesus. And that's fantastic. But in this particular case, what we're looking at is really the second half. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, one, of the Son, two, of the Holy Spirit, three. It is safe to say that the order tells us the hierarchy of persons, most certainly. It starts with the Father, then it goes to the Son, then it goes to the Holy Spirit. But the Father's role, as we understand it here, is to send the Son into the world. So his role now, in particular regard to Jesus, is to send his son to the world. John 6, verse 57. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And so you see there's a, an acknowledgement of hierarchy in terms of who Jesus submits to. Jesus submits to the father because he's his father. He's the one who sends him, but then Jesus is also God. We'll get onto that as well when we talk about Jesus. Okay. Jesus, when he was on earth, also said he was obedient to the Father. So he submits himself, his will, everything about him to the Father so that he could do what he was sent to do. John 5, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. In Acts, we find that it is God the Father that has raised him from the dead. Acts 2 verse 32, God had raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Again, reminder from last week, when we talk about the word God, mostly the reference is God the Father. Mostly, if not almost every time, uh, the reference is God the Father. And the reason why that is, is because when God and Jesus are mentioned in the same verse, it is logical... <laughs> that God is the Father. So Jesus is not talking about himself in this context, uh, or at least the disciples here are not talking about themselves, uh, sorry, not talking about Jesus himself. They're saying that God had raised this Jesus to life. The Father has raised this Jesus to life. When the two used in the same verse, we can pretty much guarantee that God is the Father in this context. So it's interesting when you read your Bible again, when you look at these verses again, and you'll see Jesus and God in the same sentence, it's likely that the reference is to God the Father. So God's role as the Father is to send Jesus and then to bring him to life after he died. And so God mentioned in this context is the Father, as Jesus is mentioned in the same verse. Again, it doesn't remove Jesus' godliness. It doesn't take away from who he is. He's still God. He's still 
almighty, but we know that Jesus affirms in our previous verse that he can do nothing without the Father. Let me just stop because I, I need to just help, help us understand here. What we're going to try and do is get our heads around what the Trinity is. We're never going to fully understand what the Trinity is. We're going to best explain the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Don't try hard to get your head around the whole thing because you're never going to do it. You're never going to fully understand. We can only understand it as much as we read the Bible. And the, there are verses here that are directly, directly tell us that there is a hierarchy within uh, the Trinity, but that all, all are equal as God. And then we see, as God's role, God the Father also places Jesus to the right hand of power so that the Father is glorified. Philippians 2, verse 9 to 11, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. So God exalted him. So now we're talking about God the Father exalting Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Verse 11. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Helpful to try and understand now that we're getting there. We're trying to understand that now Jesus is mentioned also. But even in this verse, which is so much more helpful, we end with glory always goes to God the Father. It's why Jesus tells us that the only way to the Father is through him. But we still need to get to the Father because he is the Father. But Jesus is also God. How can he not be God if he didn't die for sin? He has to be God as we looked at last week. But again... Jesus is equally God, as God the Father has stated that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yet God the Father, and let's be clear, is not handing over or demoting himself because he's handed some power to Jesus. And the reason why that's important is because we work in, this, in, in the human world, we hand off. We, we say, I retire from work, I'm going to hand over my things to someone else who's young maybe younger who's just started the, in in the business who's taken over from me later on whatever you might want to call it as an example and what happens is you then go i'm going to retire now i don't have that job anymore i'm going to live and just kind of retire that's not what's happening here god the father is no less because he gives power to jesus and the reason why that happens is because they're all god does that make sense that that can't leave the trinity so the power of god can't leave the trinity even though the power of God is between them. And even that, I say that very word, between them. And if anyone that might see this, they might go, how could you use between them? You're talking about this version of, of what God is, and there's modalism over here, and there's this version, and this theory, and I don't know fully how it works. But I am assured by reading these verses that the power is the same. God the Father is no less God the Father. So he's not handing over, he's not demoting himself. Jesus will perform that role to the glory of the Father. That is his place to do that. The Father holds a position as first person in the Trinity in the same way a father is the head of the household uh, that we read also in the Bible. And now I want to be clear, again, we did this and I did the role of women as well in the Bible and what the Bible says about that. And I was very clear that what it doesn't do, as in the Trinity, 
It doesn't diminish the other person. I want to be clear. We're not that religion, okay? We're not that religion that places women second, okay? This is, this is a, a, a role-based Bible. Men have a role. Women have a role. Either is no less under God. Does that make sense? Because what we tend to do, what tend to certain religions might do, is say the man has power over the woman, beats her down, pushes her down. That's not how it works. In fact, the man, as a husband, is meant to treat her like Jesus treats the church, it says. And yet we don't see that in our society. We don't see men being men. We see men being boys. We see men not growing up. We see men succumbing to the world. And it's a very sad state of affairs, we find. But the example still stands. It doesn't diminish the role of a person, of the mother, of the wife, as I've done in the sermon, but in, in marriage between a man and a woman, we have two individuals coming together through marriage, becoming one flesh. You read that before? Ephesians 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, will be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Will become one. Not remain two in that sense, will become one. In order for the husband and wife to be one flesh, then surely the logic follows that husband and wife have equal standing, equal value, equal in personhood, but have distinct roles. And there you get a reflection of the Trinity. You're starting to get the idea of how that works. Just as the father has authority over the son, so in marriage the husband has authority over the wife, but her role is not diminished. Again, I need to keep saying that because someone will jump on this and say, how could you say that? It's sexist, it's terrible. I'm telling you what the Bible says. The Bible actually says the man needs to be very responsible. The way that Jesus loved the church, so the man must love his wife. I don't see that around a lot. I don't see it in our world. It's a very sad state of affairs that we find ourselves in when people turn away from the Bible. Men are chasing the dreams of the world, not living up to what God has made them to be. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. There is the responsibility. There is the role. This might help us to understand that no matter the role within that relationship, within our relationships, even going outside of marriage, everyone is equally accountable to God. Everyone. Men and women, husband and wife, still are equally accountable to God. Their faith is personal to their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You don't live your faith through the husband. Wives don't live their faith through the husband. They live it to Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's look at the sum. Um, in the roles of the Trinity, uh, John 6, 38, we kind of hang around a lot of these verses because uh, they kind of go on to automatic naturally talk about Jesus in the second breath almost as we look at the verses but John 6 38 says for I've come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me 
Jesus' role is to do the will of the Father as God incarnate. That means that he came to be God, he is God on earth. That will was to die for our sins so that we didn't have to. Hebrews 10 verse 10. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's important to know that when you read this and when we look at we're saying that Jesus is serving the Father and he's doing the things of the Father's will. It's important to note that Jesus is not a bystander in what's going on. When we read about the gospel, when we read what he did, he's not a bystander. He's not just kind of being taken along with it. He knows what's happening. He's not a bystander to his own death. He voluntarily submitted himself to take on human nature. But in that individual existence, he submitted to the Father living in total obedience to him. He gives himself over to God, to God the Father. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in, a, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' role in the Trinity is second in priority. Second in priority in terms of persons, but no less God. Jesus as God came in human form to interact with us as human beings. The Father is the head of deity. The Son is the one who reveals the deity. All distinct, all carrying out their duties, as it were, as we might refer to them, but certainly carrying out their roles. None are diminished as God, as they carry out those roles as persons of the Trinity. And while we might often look to Jesus coming to earth to die for sins, Jesus is yet more than that. He's more than that. In fact, Jesus holds all things together in the wider sense. Colossians 1, 15 to 19, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This gets, this gets really confusing. This stuff is hard to process. We're saying that God is the Father, and he is the Father. We're saying that the Father is God, and Father... Ah, I need to pray for these guys on these motorbikes. I'm telling you, they're wheeling up and down this street, and um, we need to pray for them, because if they're going to smash into someone or something, it's just it's awful what they do down here. And I dread to think, I come here and I hear about what's going to happen with these guys. Uh, I pray, we've got to pray for them to get a life, I'm telling you. We've got to get a life in Jesus and stop this stupidness. Sorry, it's just I see them wheeling and I think of all the people that are around here and just walking with their kids. I just, I want to, 
but also want to go just turn to jesus guys come on stop it anyway i've been distracted let's go on okay jesus is the likeness of god and the manifestation of god jesus is the author of all creation he himself is not a created being when we behold the wonder and the, uh, of the, and the glory of the world uh, Jesus created, we worship and honour him all the more. We see that Jesus is kind of this underlining, I don't know how to describe it, because we kind of use almost earthly, worldly words to describe it. He's kind of, it's almost like the glue, as we read in Colossians, that holds everything together. That's not going to do him justice, by the way, that's terrible wording, but... When we read in Colossians, he's, God has given him, God the Father's given him this responsibility, this role that he holds everything together. The glue that holds everything together. And one day he'll come, he's holding grace at the moment, but one day he'll come and grace won't be there anymore. Grace will stop because Jesus has to come and bring judgment. Everything God the Father says is everything he's in his fullness. He's happy to have it dwell in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is both the unifying principle and the personal sustainer of all creation. In him, it says, all things hold together. In him. And it's here in these verses that we understand this fullness of God that dwells in Jesus. It's not temporary. It's not moving around. It's not Jesus was God for this certain time, for three years on earth, and then he's not God anymore. He's always God. He always has been God and always will be God. The ancient Greek word for dwell, as we, it's used, as it says in this sense, where God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, uh, is used in the sense of permanent dwelling. It's not just saying he's there. The meaning of this original word actually meant a permanency of dwelling within Jesus Christ. And here is an entirely different word used for the sense of temporary dwelling place. It's actually a different word. I don't have it. There's a different word used to describe a temporary dwelling. This one, when it says dwell with God, is actually a permanent. And we, we describe it because we want to convert to one word. We want to say, we want to translate and go, here's this word. We have to try and boil it down to one word. Whereas actually in this language, it's, it's actually quite extensive. One word could mean so much. It can actually have four English words in it, potentially. Uh, almost forming a sentence sometimes. And so we, we understand this word, but yet we don't fully understand just by saying, He's present. I mean, it's effectively what he's saying, but yet the English language does no power to the gospel in that sense. It actually almost takes away from it when we look at the original language and say, actually, saying permanently is in Jesus, intentionally. The fullness is in Christ, it says. It's not in a church. It's not in a priesthood. It's not in a building. It's not a sacrament, it's not in the saints, not in a method or a program, but in Jesus Christ himself. It is in him, as you, we, we might like to say, as a distribution point. So that those who wanted more of God and all, all that he is can find it in Jesus Christ. We won't find it in other things. We won't find it by performing good tasks and good deeds. Uh, we do it for him, but we won't find Jesus in that. We'll... We'll do that because of Jesus. What is in Jesus is in Jesus. Surprise, surprise. 
And so to that end, we also find that there needs to be a way for many more to come to Christ after Jesus ascends to the Father. How does that work? Jesus being second in priority in person means, means he not only testifies to God the Father, but also to the Holy Spirit. And we find this in John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you uh, all the things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. And with that, let's look at the Spirit as we uh, come to the, 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 the end of this message. But let's look at the Holy Spirit. What's the job, as it were, the role of the Holy Spirit? Jesus Jesus' work was primarily centred around opening the way to salvation for us. Uh, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, is largely what we might say is behind the scenes. Uh, Jesus was appeared physically. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. He is a spirit. I need to say he is a spirit because he is a he. Um, but it's largely behind the scenes. No less significant, no less important, and no less God. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction of sin and judgment to the world. And so when you became a Christian, the one thing that should have affected you, because this is guaranteed, I'm going to read the verse that shows this is what should have happened, is the Holy Spirit should have convicted you, as it did me, of our sin. So he should have brought to mind the forefront, I am a sinner in need of redemption. That's his job. I'm going to read this. John 16, 7 to 11. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and in the wrong about righteousness and in the wrong about judgment. I'm, I think I'm okay to add that, just to make sure uh, we're saying what he's saying there. Verse 9. About sin... Because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I can take the first two. How is, how is it you, couldn't, you can't see that happening today? About sin, because people do not believe in me. Sinful not to believe in Jesus, by the way. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. I don't believe in righteousness. I don't believe Jesus is returning to the Father. I don't believe that he existed. I don't believe that he came to earth. I don't believe he's God. All those things. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit enables our sinful nature to be able to respond to God's offer of grace and salvation. The only way our sinful nature can respond to God is if the Holy Spirit enables us to do so. And there's all sorts of things to talk about that. It's not in this particular sermon, but the, when does the Holy Spirit come in when you're about to believe in Jesus? Is it just before? Is it just after? Is it somewhere in the middle? The Holy Spirit is the only one that is able, though, to convict us. By that logic, let me say this. I think the Holy Spirit comes to a person just before they're going to give their life to Jesus. Just before. If the only way to be convicted of our sin is by the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit must be there. 
Otherwise, we're kind of making this up, aren't we? Otherwise, actually, the person who doesn't know the Holy Spirit and doesn't understand that there is a conviction of sin needed, either it's a false conviction, or that's not how it works. And yet the verses tell us that's exactly how it works. The only way is through the Holy Spirit. It's only the Holy Spirit that convicts people and so enable people to accept the work on the cross. The Holy Spirit is not only there to convict us, though. We look at that and we go, that's an amazing moment. We're convicted of sin and then we're shown the glory of Jesus Christ, that we can live again, have a new life, forever put to death the old life, learn to live to Jesus for the rest of our lives. It's not only there for that, but he's there to sustain us also. To then be with those who accept his conviction for the rest of their lives. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, in him we were also chosen, having predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There's going to be a whole series on that word, predestined. Uh, it's not about that, by the way, uh, but it's about election, and that's coming at some point. That's a whole other thing, because it's, it's quite a complex thing to explain, but let me carry on, and I'll try and explain a little bit just to give us some context. Everything in conformity with the purpose of his will Verse 12, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, may be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. Make that point, when you believed. Not that it just happened, you believed it when you heard it. And you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit verse 14 who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are god's possession to the praise of his glory it was through the acceptance of the message of truth when we believe that we have been predestined by first putting our hope in christ let me just tell you quickly what i believe this word to mean before we go have a whole series about it in some weeks time if you are a believer in christ you are predestined does that make sense this verse talks about predestined and then what it's doing is describing what being predestined is being predestined is to believe in jesus and believers in jesus guess what happens to them because it's in the bible you go to heaven you're saved salvation if you believe in Jesus, you are predestined to go to heaven, to believe in him, worship him, live forevermore. There's a whole big debate about what that means, uh, but we'll get to that. It's important I describe that, though, because that word can be misused and used for other purposes, which I don't agree with. But anyway, when we believe, believers are predestined to be in Christ. And so that conviction meant we're now guaranteed our inheritance in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a Christian, we are called, therefore, to live to Christ through the power of that same Holy Spirit. How is that possible? He serves as our primary interpreter of the scripture. John 14, verse 26. Again, back to our verse earlier. But the advocate of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. 
Through the reading and understanding of scripture, the Holy Spirit works in our lives to produce fruit. He does this to produce fruit. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know, when you read that verse, do you worry that you don't have those things sometimes? Yeah, that's okay. Can't worry about that. Because <laughs> guess what? The Holy Spirit is not a... Uh, He's, he's not a magician. It's not a magic trick. It's not like he comes in and he just goes, done. You are forever. It, love, joy, peace. You forbear people. You're kind. You're good. You're faithful. You're gentle. You're self-controlled. You know, I can say that because I can, every single Christian, no matter what your flavor of Christianity is, I'm telling you now, I don't know one person who can fulfill every criteria 24-7. It's not possible. This is why it speaks in the context of the spirit, not in the context of what I can do. So if I believe in the Holy Spirit who continues to work in me these things so that I may be hopefully these things, get better at being these things through the Holy Spirit, not through my effort, ready for the day that when I meet him, I'll be these things. It's like a promise. I'm going to be these things when I meet God face to face, as it were. Jesus pays the price. I go to heaven. I live with him forevermore. I'm not me anymore. I'm this. I'm able to be kind. I'm able to be good. I'm able to be faithful. All because of the Holy Spirit, not because of how impressive I am. So here's our guide to life as believers Without him, we're lost, but with the Holy Spirit, he enables us to know and talk with God. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is essential for the life we're called to live. The three persons of the Godhead, they voluntarily submit to one another so that each role that each person has in God is respected. Every role, every person in the Trinity is respected as God. The Father sent the Son into the world, but the Son never sends the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus and proceeds from the Father to testify of Christ. And Jesus perfectly submitted his will to the Father's. All three persons of the Trinity have the same essence, the same nature, the same glory. But each one has different roles or activities when it comes to how God relates to the world. And so it is with us as we understand how does church work what is the principle of how we should be as a church? We're not only called to an individual relationship with God, but one that involves being a unified and diverse church, just as the Trinity is in its relationship. A church made up of many members, different skills, different gifts, but one body, working to and for the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Many people quote this today as, it's sadly a convenient verse used to to say something else which actually the verse doesn't mean but we're called to be a church of many tribes and many nations and that's true we are but not for the sake of looking diverse to the world does that make sense it's not for the sake of looking like you're diverse we're not doing this to appeal to just go hey guys look how like modern we are look how cool we are 
That, that's not what that verse means. That's not what that's calling to. Because that, that's not what it's meant to be the purpose of the church. It's not for the sake of looking diverse to the world. Instead, it's to be a unified church where diversity exists. Let me say this. The first thing we must do as a church, as every church must do, is be unified. And when you think that what does unity mean? Unity means that the person who walks through the door, the people that we meet, that join the church, that come together. If they're not Christian, we love them and we want them to become Christians. If they are Christians, we love them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Guess what happens first? Unity happens first. And because of unity, diversity happens. Does that make sense? When you're open to loving people that walk through the door, diversity happens because of unity. This unity in a church that seeks to find certain people, certain places, certain social classes even, I'm telling you, I, I don't see that as a church of Jesus Christ. I don't see that as the one that's written in the Bible. What must come first is unity, a unified church. And the attractiveness is the unity. People will come from places around and go, I'm going to come because I've, I've heard about Jesus there. I've heard that the Holy Spirit is there. I've heard they believe in the Bible. My goodness, what a thing I have to say today. I've heard this church talks about the Bible. I'm not making that up, guys. You know that some people have come here and said those very words. They've been around other churches and have said, oh, I just can't find anyone that really talks about the Bible. What? What is happening, church? What is happening around us? Come here and we speak about the Bible because it's amazing. It's an amazing piece of literature. And then it's this amazing life-saving word that brings life to those who believe in it. Went off on a tangent. Anyway, only living as Christians unified to Christ and by Christ, as the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are unified in the Trinity, can we truly appreciate the diversity of the, of the church to which he's called us to? If we love Jesus, if we, we can understand that there's a, a perfect unity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, if we can try and practice that unity, that togetherness, welcome everybody. But guess what? We're here for Jesus. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here to do this. We're not here to do that. You come in here, you're going to hear about Jesus. Not because we want to bash you over the head with it, because we want you to be saved. And then we want people to come who are tired, who are exhausted, of being workhorses for their churches. And saying, that's not what church is about. Come here and serve in the joy of Jesus. Oh, just come and serve because it's great to serve. Not because I want you to do this, this and this, and then, well, you'll be quite a good member of the church, wouldn't you? Ah, we've got it wrong, church. We've got it wrong in our churches. Where's the grace and love and acceptance of Jesus Christ? I know so we get it right all the time. But I've been through the whole exhaustion thing. I've been through that. I've been through the whole thing of having to tick boxes, looking good, looking good at serving the things I'm doing in, and oh, aren't you doing well and you serve well? Jesus never asked for that. He said simply this, come and believe that I am Lord 
and you'll be saved. It's so simple. And what do we do with it? Make it into a business. It's sad, but there is a good side. We need to get amongst it, church. We need to get amongst people, especially other Christians who are being led away into this work-based nonsense of salvation. That the only thing they need to do is accept Jesus Christ in their life. And you know what? Anything I can do that means I serve Jesus, I'll do it. I don't need to be in a team. I don't even need to be on a rotor. I just want to serve him all the time. That's what church should be doing, guys. Let me leave you with this verse. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 13. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts from one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form the one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. It is the same God, one God, three persons. Every single person who comes to Jesus comes to the same Jesus. Every person who professes Jesus Christ has professed the same Jesus Christ as we have. If they believe that he is Lord and he is God and he died for sins and he rose again after three days. Same God. It's amazing. I feel like I should give you loads of, loads of work to do now. Like now I've given you this, I should say, right, now to do this, we're going to need to go out in the community. We're going to need to knock on doors. Come on. Come on. We need to believe in Jesus, trust in the Holy Spirit. He will guide us and he will use us in the way he wants us to be, be used in this area. Just trust in him. Only God can do the work. Only God will build his church. Let's pray and then let's worship.